This is Macro Horizons, episode 60, Echoes of 1987, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with John Hill and Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of March 16th. And with stocks officially in a bear market, we're reminded it's still only the first quarter. views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market and a bad joke or two. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to keep the show as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. The Treasury market experienced some rather dramatic price action this week. We saw a variety of developments that don't follow the intuitive patterns that we have come to expect in the U.S. rates market. First off, we have seen a reasonably significant backup in yields after establishing record lows in 10s and 30s on Monday. The sell-off in treasuries has been accompanied by a sell-off in risk assets, which is where it all starts to get a little confusing. The baseline correlation of risk-on versus risk-off, benefiting stocks at the detriment of bonds, didn't hold, and this brings up a lot of questions, the primary question being that of liquidity. We've gone from an environment in which market participants were shedding stocks and running into bonds to an environment in which longer-dated treasuries are being sold profits being taken, and larger cash positions being established. This makes sense only if the consensus has shifted from a short-term, temporary series of headwinds created by the coronavirus to something far more dramatic. We've long maintained that there will be a period of loss consumption that won't be regained that will have a negative impact on real GDP in the U.S. The question had always been one of timing and severity. Yes, there are very good odds that we're going to be facing a recession in 2020. And yes, there's also very good odds that once up against the effective lower bound, the Fed will push forward with balance sheet expanding QE. Whether that is going to be enough to offset the impact as the coronavirus makes its way through the U.S. remains to be seen. One of the trends that we were encouraged to see develop later in the week was that of a re-steepening of the twos tens curve. This follows history very well. When the Fed is in an easing mode, cutting rates in the front end, there's a tendency for that to be interpreted as an inflationary impulse. As investors demand more compensation to go further out the curve, and hence developing the cyclical re-steepening that we have been anticipating at this point in the cycle. The biggest unknown, having gotten north of 40 basis points in twos tens, is whether or not the next stop is 55 or if it's 75. We continue to anticipate the steepening has room to run, with the caveat that unlike in prior rate cutting cycles, 
the near and present prospects for quantitative easing will cap the extent to which the curve will re-steepen. Liquidity concerns remain the primary focal point in a variety of markets. The Fed's attempt to reassure the funding side via committing to support and repo more overnight operations and by transitioning their bill buying program further out the curve has offered at least a temporary respite for risk assets. So in the last 18 months, we've seen a rate hike, a couple rate cuts, an intermeeting rate cut, a bull market in equities and a bear market in equities. This is always how it happens, right? Yeah, pretty much. And it also was accompanied by record low 10-year yields, record low 30-year yields, and another round of coordinated monetary policy action by global central banks. To say that we're living in interesting times is an understatement. One of the most fascinating aspects of the price action of the last week, and something that we've received a fair number of questions about, is what exactly is going on with the longer end of the curve? We've seen several massive sell-offs in the equity market, and sell-offs of this magnitude have historically been accompanied by a flight to quality that benefits the treasury market. We've seen, on a few occasions, something that suggests the opposite. We've seen upward pressure on 10- and 30-year yields despite the sell-off in stocks. Our interpretation is that investors are fleeing every asset and going into cash. Intuitively, that makes sense given the amount of uncertainty created by the coronavirus, but it's also playing out in the price action. If we look at the nuance between the on-the-run and off-the-run treasuries, what we see is off-the-run underperforming, the notion there being some of the securities that were being held as longer-term investments are simply being sold into the market without the benefit of liquidity premium that the on-the-runs receive. It's often an indicator of directional change in the overall rates market. However, in this experience, it feels more like it's simply a flight to cash. One other nuance I'd add has to do with sequencing. If we think back three weeks, four weeks ago, a lot of the conversation was about why are rates so low when equities are setting all-time highs? Obviously, the relationship has flipped in dramatic fashion in the past two weeks, but it's important to keep in mind if only because the bond market weeks ago had priced the Fed going lower for longer. In the past couple of weeks, we've even seen the market pricing the Fed all the way to zero in the very near term to say nothing of the growing possibility of a QE program. So in some ways, the fact that we haven't seen rates push down lower just indicates that the bond market got there a little bit faster. After all, 10-year yields have spent most of this week below 1%. That's not really any bearish pressure in treasuries. That's just the interest rate market re-equilibrating to the lower for longer outlook. Then the implicit question becomes, and this is something that we've heard several times, when does the backup in rates lead to equity selling? Because people expect that there's yet another leg lower. This is also a different version of the ongoing debate about what does the equity market know that the treasury market doesn't know and vice versa. At this point, I think it's safe to say that 
all investors, regardless of the asset class in which they're participating, are working with the same overarching lack of information. Even the Fed has shifted into a decidedly responsive mode to some of the developments that we have seen. Now, that isn't out of character. However, one would hope over the course of the next few weeks, there's a greater sense of calm and order restored, given the liquidity constraints that we've seen over the course of the last week. When I think about rising interest rates, I also think it's super important to disentangle whether it's being driven by more inflation compensation, something closer to that 2% target, or by higher real yields. Higher real yields traditionally would be more concerning for economic activity and a little bit more hawkish from the Fed. Ben, what do you make of the pickup in real rates we've seen this week? At this point, five and 10-year reals, at least measured by tips, are basically zero even though there's a strong expectation that overnight rates are going to be basically zero in a matter of days. Yeah, John, that has been something that's caught our and frankly, the rest of the market's eye. Why are real yields still so high with now the zero lower bound basically priced in before the second half of the year? And here it's important to remember that real yields are based on the tips market. And in such volatile environments such as this, an already relatively illiquid tips market only becomes more so. So that leads to some pretty dramatic pricing distortions, given the fact that liquidity has thinned in that corner of the inflation-protected treasury market. It's also consistent with the idea that there are flow implications in the treasury market and the tips market that aren't necessarily reflecting the global macro themes that we typically tend to see. Now, we've made the point several times about thin liquidity, wide bid ask spreads, and the like. And I do think that this is a very good example, particularly in the long end, where flows matter in an environment where risk-taking on the street is being curbed. Now, we know the narrative that the regulations that came into place in the wake of the financial crisis has limited primary dealers' willingness and ability to take risk and provide liquidity in the way that they did prior to the crisis. But we haven't really started to see the manifestation of some of those changes until this week. One other complicating factor in this week of all weeks was the fact that we had tens of billions of dollars of 10 and 30-year issuance coming at a time where markets were highly volatile making it more difficult for primary dealers to properly price and hedge that risk going into the intermediation. Yeah, the result of all three auctions this week was really interesting. We had two very large tails at threes and thirties, but meanwhile, tens actually stopped through. So what to make of this? I mean, the price action leading into the longer duration auctions was a pretty textbook concession. But in that case, why did the 30-year auction tail by four basis points, the largest in a very long time? And here it's important to highlight that doesn't necessarily indicate any weakening demand, particularly in this environment for treasuries, but rather the extremely volatile trading environment that we find ourselves in and the dramatic swings we saw leading into the auction, which was principally a function of the Fed's surprise announcement. And further to your point, Ben, the long bond is the land of the big DVO1s. And in an environment where rates are moving in such a counterintuitive way at times, investors are simply unwilling to step up and take down size in these auctions. Again, this is the moment in which one would expect the traditional liquidity payup 
by the Treasury Department to borrow a significant amount of money would come into play. And that's exactly what we saw in the long bond. That is, the Treasury had to pay up, ostensibly dramatically, but in a broader context, not dramatically at all, for the ability to access capital markets. Limited access to capital markets as a theme has been part of what has driven the most recent repricing in the equity market, at least, simply because investors are concerned that companies who are negatively impacted during the corona outbreak are going to find themselves cash constrained and have trouble borrowing in a timely manner. This is a very classic liquidity crisis, although the origins of it are somewhat non-intuitive. We've been making the point, and I think that it's still valid, that there comes a inflection point in which the price action itself becomes the problem instead of reflecting the overarching investor anxiety. And we just hit that. We have a bear market in equities that's going to lead to some significant retooling in the financial sector. Banks are now faced with very low rates, which isn't necessarily a positive, as we've seen the flip side of that over the course of the last several years. And as we enter this new period of uncertainty, gauging the degree and fashion in which we expect to see a continued flight to quality is going to be the key. Ian, I like the way you characterize that because in my mind, one of the things that happened over the past week is the situation evolved from just a health and a temporary economic crisis, especially in certain pockets of the economy, to the possibility of something turning into a financial crisis, in particular, a dollar funding squeeze. The Fed seems to be very, very concerned about this, and their announcement on Thursday was nothing short of flabbergasting. They basically announced a willingness to inject over $5 trillion in repo by early April. That's a fake number. And the reality is, one, they're not going to have to do anything close to that. But two, they're just reminding the market that if you need liquidity, at least the primary dealers, we will be there to inject. What will be interesting to see is whether this continues to spread. Do you see ongoing spread widening and fraud OIS? Do you see credit risk continue to be priced in, people starting to ring fence or hoard reserves or cash? The other thing that I'll be watching closely is the Fed's FX swap line with other foreign central banks. Back in 2008, that facility increased by something on the order of magnitude of five to six hundred billion dollars in just a matter of weeks. Whether that happens this time around will really have to do with where the demand for dollars is. Is it domestic? Is it foreign? And frankly, it's somewhat comforting that the Fed is at least willing to inject this quantity of cash into the system, whether they have to or not. It's kind of that age-old question about the bazooka, whether or not you need to fire it, but everyone needs to know that you have it. The Fed wasn't the only central bank prompted into action, and in fact, we saw the ECB expand their bond buying efforts, although on a temporary basis, which to a lot of the market was a disappointment. There was never really a great expectation for the ECB to cut rates further into negative territory, but the expectation was that we'd see more than we got from Lagarde. Yeah, and that's keeping with the theme that we've heard a lot in Europe, and that is monetary policy is pretty much out of room to address the underlying problem, and so the fix will need to come from the fiscal side. But yet, there are still a lot of unknowns around the details of the fiscal response in the United States. One thing that we have heard floated in Washington is a payroll tax holiday or an extension of paid time off benefits. The 
former doesn't seem to have the political will to actually come to fruition, although we definitely traded that potential upside several times during the last week. And all the while, one of the key background factors has been the dramatic sell-off in oil and a repricing lower in the energy complex. Oh yeah, Ian, did something happen with OPEC in the past week? OPEC? Used to be somebody. Monday morning's dramatic rally in treasuries, which actually set the new all-time lows in 10s and 30s, was only partially driven by the COVID-19 outbreak. The other major factor, which might have stronger longer-term consequences, if we're being intellectually honest, and this hostility between the Saudis and Russians holds, was a 20% plus drop in crude oil prices. The question for the domestic economy becomes, is this a good or a bad thing? Certainly for a lot of consumers, this translates into lower energy costs, cheaper prices at the pump, and should be an implicit tax cut or a little bit of a tailwind to consumption. Of course, with the virus outbreak, it's not like you're all of a sudden going to go to a concert because gas is a few cents cheaper. On the other hand, a huge amount of the domestic economy and a large amount of business fixed income investment over the past five, ten years has been driven by the oil and gas sector. If we expect crude oil prices to drop to $20, $30 and stay somewhere in that range, that's really going to squeeze a lot of the oil and gas sector, and you're going to start to see a reduction in investment, layoffs, and yet another pain point in what had been a large economic driver for in the U.S. How far that plays out and whether that is yet another factor that could tip us into a recession in the next few months or quarters is still to be seen, but I'm going to be watching the high-yield market very, very closely to see if there are broadening signs of distress. And to your point, John, I think the credit space should be monitored closely for further indications that the corporate sector is not on as strong a footing as it was assumed to be even as recently as six weeks ago. Wait, Ian, are you giving credit where credit is due? Wait, the the credit is due? Well, that's been the default assumption. I thought treasuries were a risk-free asset. Only in an MMT world. In the week ahead, there's very little economic data on the horizon with the exception of the February retail sales report. Consumption is the key at this point in the cycle, and the risk that weaker consumer confidence rolls into less willingness to spend remains a key concern both for market participants as well as global central bankers. Any meaningful recession in the U.S. ultimately finds its origin in consumption. That's simply a function of how much the consumer dominates growth in the U.S. On Wednesday, the focal point of the week will be the FOMC rate decision. As it currently stands, expectations for the effective lower bound to be achieved in the near term remain strong. The bigger uncertainty is what happens once rates are cut to zero. How quickly does the Fed transition from the implied stimulus of a 100 basis point rate cut to actually expanding the balance sheet. Our baseline expectations are that it will happen sooner rather than later. If for no other reason, we're effectively fully priced for a rate cut. And if Powell has any aspirations of outdoving even the dovish expectations currently priced in, he will need to deliver more. After the week just passed, we know that the Fed is in the market actively buying $60 billion worth of treasuries, 
increasing that number to 100 or 150 billion a month will certainly offer the type of reassurance that market participants are looking for at this point. Whether in practical terms that comes to fruition or not will be a function of the FOMC and their judgment of how bad liquidity conditions have become and how much at risk they see inflation expectations at this stage. As evidenced by the choppy price action, this is not an environment in which investors and market makers appear to be taking a great deal of risk. Rather, the theme of accessing liquidity, building up cash stores, and waiting for the proverbial storm to pass seems to be the unifying theme. With that context, we'll be continuing to watch the treasury market and expect there'll be moments of stabilization that help define the new lower rate trading range. We remain skeptical that the record low 10-year yield established last week at 31.3 basis points won't be challenged at least in the medium term. However, as the flight to cash continues, we're sympathetic to an unwillingness to stand in front of any backup in rates from this point. A continued re-steepening of the yield curve is very consistent with our outlook, and we're targeting a move in twos tens beyond 50 basis points in the wake of the Fed, which we expect to deliver both in terms of lower rates as well as more dovish forward guidance, if not another foray into expanding the balance sheet. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. And as the U.S. goes into coronavirus lockdown, we find ourselves anticipating the culinary adventures that await us as we work through our canned food supply. How long do canned beets last, anyway? Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy effort as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. So please email me directly with any feedback at ian.lingen at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures.
futures contracts and commodity options or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.